a wonderful, wonderful book. God bless us tonight as we study your word. We pray that you'll help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, four theologians went on a camping trip. It was just about time to go to sleep when one of the theologians said to the other, he said, before we close our eyes tonight, let's look up at the sky. Hey, tell me what you see. The first theologian, he spoke up. He said, well, I see billions of stars stretched over millions of galaxies. Yet of all the planets, only earth can sustain life. The next theologian, he offered his perspective. He said, I see the massive expanse of space as evidence that God is infinite and we are finite and we find our significance in his concern for us. Well, not to be outdone, the third theologian, he jumped in. He said, well, I see a night like former nights when my life was tortured with trouble. God was with me, though, in the darkness, and the stars now remind me of his faithfulness. Finally, the three theologians, they turned to the fellow who started the discussion, and they asked him, they said, well, what do you see? And that's when he said, I think somebody stole our tent. You know, it's good to think high in holy thoughts, but there's also a real practical side of life. The Bible does address heady philosophical subjects like the meaning of life, but it also gets down to earth. It applies to issues like money and kids and marriage and work and wine and words and beauty. Everything from occupation to temptation to conversation. And nowhere does the Bible get more practical than the Proverbs. I don't think it's an accident that when the Bible was organized into chapters, Proverbs was arranged into 31 divisions. That means there's one chapter of the Proverbs for every day of the month. You know, if you took a chapter a day and you cycled through them 12 times a year, the benefits to your life would be incalculable. Billy Graham makes an interesting comparison. He says the Psalms teach us how to get along with God, whereas the Proverbs, how to get along with our fellow man. That may be an oversimplification, but it does emphasize the practical nature of the Proverbs. Take heed to these Proverbs, and you will live a better life. Well, chapter 1 begins, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us that Solomon penned 3,000 Proverbs. About 25% of those, or 700 Proverbs, are recorded in this book. That means that we're missing a few. But the ones we do have are packed with a wealth of wisdom. The author identifies himself, it was Solomon, and in the next few verses, he states his purpose. Here are the goal of the Proverbs. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence to the simple or the naive. To the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Once there was a business executive who was asked the key to his success. He said two words, good decisions. Well, the interviewer, he, he, asked, he said, well, okay, that, that's fine, but how does a person learn to make good decisions? The man answered, one word, experience. Well, the reporter, he, he kind of pressed him again. He said, okay, but how does a person gain experience? And that's when the executive replied, two words, bad decisions. 
You know, it's true, experience is the best teacher. But there are two types of experience you can learn from. You can learn from your own experiences, or you can learn from the experiences of others. You see, the fool has to make his own mistakes. Wisdom is willing to learn from others and other people's mistakes. As we're told here in verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. I like to call the Proverbs short statements based on long experience. Hey, why attend classes in the school of hard knocks when you can learn from its graduates? Why learn the hard way? Be wise, not otherwise. Solomon is going to share with us some of his wisdom. Now Solomon continues defining his purpose in verse 6. He says, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. And you'll find that some of the proverbs are enigmas or riddles. In other words, they're tricky or they're really difficult to grasp. You know, this was true of many of Jesus' parables. You know, they were slippery enough to slide past the casual listener. It took a seriousness, a certain amount of discernment to grasp Jesus' parables. And this is also true of the Proverbs. Hey, thankfully, God makes the gospel accessible to everyone. I mean, the gospel is straightforward and simple. No one can misunderstand. But not all the diamonds of God are just laying on the ground. More often, you've got to dig to get to know certain aspects of wisdom. And wisdom is for those who are willing to dig. Well, he says in verse 7, he states the theme verse for the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, this is somewhat repeated in chapter 9, verse 10. There it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Put them both together then that means that the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord. You know, often the fear of the Lord is defined as a reverence for God opposed to a terror of God. You know, the argument goes, well, respect God. That's what he means. We should fear him in the sense that we should respect him. We should reverence him. But we shouldn't be terrified of God. You know, I'm not sure I agree. Yes, God loves us. No doubt about that. But God also loves justice and he loves righteousness. And did you know your unbelief can force a loving God to judge your soul and throw you alive into the flames of hell? Now don't tell me you shouldn't be terrified of that person. God does love you. But God also loved his only son. And what did he do to his only son? He sentenced him to an excruciating torture and to a hideous death. Jesus was judged not for his own sin, but for the sins of the world. But notice this, God still judged Jesus. And i got to say to you, if a loving God is willing to judge his only son, why do you think he would have any qualms about judging you if you rejected his grace and rejected his mercy? Hey, if God judged Jesus, God will judge you. And that's a God that I, that I want to fear. God is not to be trifled with. God means business. I relish God's love. I'm thankful for God's love. But I am absolutely terrified of God as well. He is not a God to be trifled with. Jesus, who depicted God as a loving father, running down the path at the first sight of his prodigal son returning from home, 
is also the Jesus who said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When we're to fear God, it means just that, that we need to fear the Lord. Here's how I define the fear of the Lord. It's the assumption toward all of life that God knows better than I do how I should live my life. And that I have an obligation as His creation to seek His will and to walk in His ways. Have you made that assumption about life? Are you living your life from that perspective and out of that assumption? If so, you are fearing God. God makes known His will to me because He loves me. But He's not to be played with or to be trivialized or to be taken for granted. Thus, I fear Him. Now notice the second half of verse 7. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, you're a fool if you hear God's will, you mull it over, and then you conclude that you know better than an infinite God how you should live your life. You're a fool. Did you hear about the guy who had a flat tire right next to the insane asylum? And as he was changing the tire, a mental patient was standing there behind a chain link fence just watching him. Well, the guy took off all the lug nuts and he put them inside the hubcap. And then when he went to screw the lug nuts back onto the spare, he accidentally hit the hubcap. He knocked the lug nuts off and they rolled down into a sewer drain. Well, he didn't know what to do. He's standing there, he's scratching his head. When suddenly the mental patient on the other side of the fence, he pipes up and he says, hey, why don't you just take one of the lug nuts off each of the other wheels and then you'll have enough to attach the spare and keep it on until you can find more lug nuts. The guy was amazed. He said, wow, you're, you're pretty smart. What are you doing in an insane asylum? That's when the guy turned and he said, I may be crazy, man, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> well, here's the point. The person who refuses to fear God, to take heed to wisdom, is both crazy and stupid. The Proverbs calls this man a fool. Verse 8, my son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be graceful ornaments on your head and chains about your neck. Hey, wisdom is like bling. It's cool, man. It's hip. You shine and you sparkle if you're a wise child who takes heed to his parents. You know, in the book of Proverbs, King Solomon is passing down wisdom to his son. In fact, 23 times Solomon expresses his words to, quote, my son. Solomon wants his son to learn some lessons. Not the hard way, but the easy way. He wants his son to benefit from the hard knocks he's been through. Proverbs always reminds me of a recurring scene from the Beverly Hillbilly sitcom. You remember every time Jethro Bodine would pull a boneheaded stunt, Uncle Jed would always scratch his head and, and he would always mutter to himself, One of these days I've got to have a long talk with that boy. Remember that? Well, in essence, Proverbs is Solomon's long talk with his Jethro. Solomon warns his son not to forsake the biblical instruction his parents have ingrained in him. For there will be people who will try to lead him astray. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now I hope you know that peer pressure is nothing new. I mean it's not enough for some folks to wreck their own lives. 
They want other people to follow in their foolishness. The guy who walks off the cliff finds comfort in the fact that other people are going to join him. And though Proverbs, through Proverbs, Solomon wants to give his son some inner anchors so that he can say no to sin's enticement, so that he can build a healthy independence from, from other people. God wants to, Solomon wants to provide his son the strength to stand against the current of this world. You know, I read a study done by a team of psychologists headed by a doctor named Ruth Berenda. Ten teenagers were shown three straight lines of varying lengths drawn on a board, and they were asked to choose the longest of those three lines. Unbeknownst to one of the teenagers, the other nine were told in advance to pick the line number two, which was not the, the longest line. In 75% of the cases, the 10th teenager would buckle under to the pressure and he would end up agreeing with the majority and denying the obvious. Often the teenager would have a confused look on his face. He wasn't stupid, but his desire to fit in overwhelmed his commitment to the truth. And the teenager fell victim to peer pressure. Actually, it's not just a teenage problem. We are all prone to peer pressure. We're tempted to let what's popular override what's right. This is why we all need to take heed when sinners entice, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood, let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause, I mean, these guys are predators. Let us swallow them alive like shield or death and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. Sounds like Solomon's kids getting recruited by a gang. He says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. You know, a bird is too smart to fly into what he knows is a trap. When he sees the trap, he flees. That's why we need to teach our kids to be bird brains. To spot the traps and to avoid them before they get snared. Verse 18, But they lie in wait for their own blood, they lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Wisdom, though, calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. Please, son, take heed to wisdom, Solomon is saying. It's been said the man with horse sense won't trot with the crowd. Now, beginning in verse 20, Solomon personifies wisdom. Obviously, wisdom is a non-human entity, but Solomon speaks of it as if wisdom is a lady. He says, she cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. God is offering wisdom to those who desire wisdom. Solomon, though, bemoans the fact that there are so few takers. He says, turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. 
because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have known of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. In other words, wisdom is not available forever. That's why you should grasp it while you can. You should avail yourself to wisdom while it's available. You should prepare yourself for the day when you'll need it. Because in that day, you may not be able to find it. He says, therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with the full, with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Wisdom is preventative. Turn away from the truth. Be a fool. And and you'll be dead meat. You know, often people seek wisdom only to get out of trouble. But the point of wisdom is to prevent getting into trouble. It's to prevent the damage in the first place. It's been said, what a fool does in the end, the wise man does in the beginning. Take heed to wisdom and you'll spare yourself much trouble. Well, chapter 2 begins. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then will you understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Notice this, you don't just bump into wisdom. You know, you don't bump into wisdom like you do an old friend at the grocery store, you know. Oh, hi. Hey, I got wisdom. Now, to know wisdom, you have to search for it like buried treasure. You have to desire it with all your heart. You have to dig for it. You have to want it. You have to desire it. I I love the quote from the great French philosopher Blaise Pascal. He said this, Man's wisdom must be understood to be loved, but God's wisdom must be loved to be understood. To get God's wisdom, you have to incline your ear, Solomon says. You have to apply your heart. Verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. And isn't that great? God doesn't hoard wisdom. He gives wisdom. I I love James chapter 1 verse 5. There we're told, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He goes on, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Notice the Lord is like a bodyguard. You know, whenever you see the president, he's always surrounded by those black-suited secret service agents. And you know, if you could see yourself spiritually, if you could look into a mirror and see the spiritual realm around you, you too would be surrounded by the Holy Spirit. He guards you. 
by angels who the psalmist says camp over us. Even wisdom guards you. It guards the children of God. You know, here wisdom is, is like a, it guards our path. He says, then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will persevere you or preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. Wisdom is our bodyguard. And Solomon sees two dangerous enemies out to destroy us from which we need to be protected. One is a man and the other is a woman. Verse 12 identifies the man who speaks perverse things. There is a perverse man who wants to trip you up. But verse 16 gives us a description of the woman who is our enemy. He says, to deliver you from the immoral woman. Here is the young man. Here is Solomon's son. Here is his chief enemies. A man and a woman. A perverse man and an immoral woman. You see, the early chapters here of Proverbs are like a drama. Three characters are vying for this son's allegiance. The perverse man, the immoral woman, and lady wisdom. Now Solomon hopes that his son will embrace wisdom. It alone will save him, we're told, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Men, listen to me men, there is a loose lady on the loose. She's in a boring marriage. In fact, she's tired of her husband. In reality, she's a spoiled brat. She's just used to having it all. And just to spice up her life and reinforce her vanity, she's out looking for a sexual conquest. She wants to use you just to prove she's still desirable. She doesn't care if she ruins her life and destroys her family. She doesn't care if she ruins your life and destroys your family. She doesn't even care if her husband finds out. She's bitter toward him anyway. She'd like for him to find out just so she could sort of dig in the knife. This woman is on the prowl, and she could care less about her commitments to God or to man. You'll find this woman in interesting places. You'll find her by the water cooler at work. Hey, this woman might even attend our church. You'll find her at the home fellowship. You'll find her at the vacation Bible school. She's always willing to work late. She always pretends to be your friend. She flatters you with lies. And she strokes your ego. She says the things to you that your wife used to say a long time ago. In subtle ways, she lets you know that there's the possibility if you want it. Slowly but deliberately, she sucks you in. This woman has probably brought down other men, and now her sights are set on you. This is why, friend, you desperately need wisdom. Verse 18 should strike fear in your heart. For her house leads down to death, 
In her past to the dead, none who go to her return, nor do they regain the past of life. Men, you take the bait, you succumb, and it will ruin your life. Don't you dare say, ah, no one will find out. Just this one time, it won't hurt. Don't be so gullible. Go to bed with her and something inside of you will die. Your self-respect, your integrity, and something will die in your marriage. Trust will be broken. Perhaps with lots of time and hard work, the damage can be repaired. But trust me, it will be tarnished forever. Listen to this letter sent to dear Anne. Here, here's one woman's pain. I want you to feel this woman's pain. She writes to, to Ann Landers. She says, Dear Ann Landers, my husband and I have been married for 30 years. I was a virgin bride and have been a faithful wife. A young woman, our daughter's age, came on to him and he took her to bed. He was so guilt-ridden and miserable that he told me about it the next day. I forgave him, did not mention it to a soul, and he never saw her again. He believes no harm was done. She thinks no harm was done. But she destroyed me. I am unable to grow old gracefully. I hate every wrinkle and every gray hair. I feel that I will never be able to be as sexually satisfying. We still have an active sex life, but I always feel that he is comparing me with her. And my 54-year-old body is coming in a very poor second. I cry for hours when I'm alone. No one suspects a thing. We now go out with friends and, and often get told what a super marriage we have. I feel like a fraud. These women should not be allowed to think that they're hurting no one. The damage that trollop did in one night was irreparable. There's no such thing as no one gets hurt. People do get hurt. Hearts get ripped apart. People do get damaged. God knows what He means when He sets this thing up for one man and one woman to be married for a lifetime together. God knows that our, our psyche, the way we're made, that to do it any other way will damage us and will harm us. Don't take your marriage vows for granted. Don't, don't take them, don't trivialize them. It's very, very important you keep your vows. <clears throat> and of course, this is not just the immoral woman that's a danger. For there are also many immoral men that you ladies need to guard against. Oh, he comes on so tender, so conscientious. You think, if only my husband was as sensitive. You need to understand, though, that his goal is to exploit your hurt and get you to bed. And once you're a notch on his belt, he'll lack any time for you anymore. Here's what I want to say to you tonight. Few people wake up in the morning and say, Oh my, today I'm going to go out and commit adultery. But it happens. And it happens to many Christians. That's why you've got to be on guard. You've got to let wisdom protect your path. Margaret Hess gives this advice. She says, draw boundaries in relationships with the opposite sex. A psychologist says he avoids scheduling a woman for his last appointment. 
A minister keeps a counselee on the other side of a desk and the drapes open. A doctor calls a nurse into the room when he must examine a woman patient. A boss and secretary can avoid going to dinner as a twosome or working evenings alone. A homemaker can avoid tempting situations with neighbors when her husband is out of town. We've got to keep boundaries between us and the opposite sex. Hey, I keep a healthy buffer between me and anybody named Buffy. You know, I have female acquaintances. I have, I have they're women that I know, that I like, and that I respect. But I want you to understand, I have only one female friend. And that's my wife. And that's the way I like it. Don't set yourself up for trouble. Well, verse 20 tells us, So you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the path of righteousness, for the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. If you don't want to be cut off or uprooted, then apply wisdom. Solomon will have more to say about the loose lady in chapters 5 through 7. Chapter 3 begins, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Hey, apply wisdom and you'll live longer and you'll live better. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. You know, some folks overlook truth in order to show mercy. Other folks ignore mercy in pursuit of the truth. The person who manages to give proper honor to both mercy and truth is the person who's taken heed to wisdom. And it's the person who other people will look up to and esteem. Verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. And here is a favorite verse for many, many people. You know, if we were to survey the prayers of most Christians, I have no doubt that the most top-rated request would probably be, Lord, show me your will. How often we pray for God to show us his will. Lord, direct our steps. And here God promises to answer that prayer if we meet three conditions. Step up and trust God. That's what he says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Then step back and question the accuracy of your own perspective. And this is what a lot of people fail to do. Yes, trust the Lord in all your heart. But then don't lean to your own understanding. Realize that you could be in error. That you could not be seeing this thing correctly. Even Christians aren't always right, then the third step is to step out and to acknowledge or apply God's word to your life. So so here it is. Step up and trust God. Step back and question yourself, but then step out and take what you know of God's word and apply it to your life. You do those three things, and then God will direct your path. He'll make sure that you're walking in his will. Verses 5 and 6 deal with direction, but the enemy of direction is 
deception. And that's what he addresses in verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Reminds me of the woman who married Mr. Wright. She finally found him, Mr. Wright. She just didn't check his first name. It was always. Hey, I don't care who you are. You're not always right, okay? None of us are mistake-proof. Fear God. Admit your fallibility and avoid deception. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Desire God's direction, then avoid self-deception. And there will be a genuine, tangible dedication. You'll give to God. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. In fact, the first sign of self-deception is a person holding out financially on God. You know, you hear it all the time. People talking about how they belong to God. Oh, I, I love the Lord. But you don't love Him enough to cut a check and give to Him a tithe of your, of your income. What kind of dedication is that? If God doesn't have your checkbook, well, then how can you truly say He's got the rest of your life? Tithe means tenth. God told Abraham, who, by the way, was the father of our faith, to honor him with the first fruits or with the first 10% of the spoils. Remember, this was long before the law. People will say, oh, well, that's the law of Moses. It doesn't apply to us today. Abraham was before the law. Abraham was the father of faith. Aren't you walking in faith? Don't you want to be a person of faith? Well, then why wouldn't you follow in the footsteps of Abraham and tithe a tenth of your resources to God? And here Solomon promises his son, tithe to God, and what will happen? Your barns will be full. Your vats will be overflowing. It's simple. You give to God, and God will see to it that he'll give to you. J. Vernon McGee, he cut to the chase on this. He wrote this. Genuine spirituality is not the length of the prayer you pray. It is the amount of the check you write. That's putting it pretty blunt, but that's true. Wisdom seeks direction. It avoids deception. It expresses dedication, and it embraces Discipline. Verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects, just as a father, the son in whom He delights. Now, I don't spank your kids, and you don't spank my kids. Especially now when they can spank you back, but. Even when they were little, that's the rule. I mean, I don't spank your kids, you don't spank my kids. Only a parent has the right to spank his kids. And this is both good news and bad news. And here's what you don't want to hear. If you're bucking, if you're bailing out on God, if you're not dealing with the issues that he's pressing on your heart, here's what God will do. He'll spank you. He'll take you to the woodshed. He will find some ways 
to apply some pain in your life until you see the danger that you're ignoring. That's what we do when we spank our kids. And God will spank you. That's what you don't want to hear. But here's the silver lining. Here's here's the good, good side of that. If God spanks you, that means that he considers you his kid. And that's good news. Don't despise his discipline. When God puts us through a little pain to get our attention, it means that he's not through with us. It means that he loves us and that he disciplines his kids. Verses 13 through 18 list the dividends of wisdom. He says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies. And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Wisdom yields valuable dividends. Trust me, you'll do far better seeking wisdom than you will in investing in stock market. He says, length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. You need to date this lady. She's she's super. This lady wisdom. Once again, Solomon personifies wisdom. You know, it's interesting. Some scholars see Jesus in these next few verses, for Jesus is the repository of all wisdom and all knowledge. He says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. Jesus, too, was involved with God in the original creation. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down with dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be, the older I get, the better that sounds. (laughs) Your sleep will be sweet. That's nice. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Notice here, the sudden terrors. This is a big concern that Solomon has for his son. How will he respond when the sudden terrors come upon him? When calamity strikes, and it does strike all of us at times, it's wisdom that will bring deliverance to his son. In a crisis, that's when it's important that you trust in God's wisdom and lean not to your own understanding. Well, the chapter closes with a collection of don'ts. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power of your hand to do so. In other words, in action. When you had the power to do someone good and you didn't do it, that's as much a sin as actually inflicting harm. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. If you've got it and you feel God leading you to give it, go ahead and give it. Now that doesn't mean that you should give it if you've got a bill in the mail that needs to be paid. That's not what it's suggesting. But if you've got some extra, 
and God says share it, then just do it. If you're always waiting to do it, you'll never do it. You know, when you have the power to do good, go ahead and do it. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Be careful how you treat your neighbor. You might need him one day. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. In other words, don't go around the neighborhood picking fights. It's irritating people, aggravating people. He says, do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Chapter 3 teaches us that God's wisdom provides direction, avoids deception, expresses dedication, embraces discipline, enjoys dividends, brings deliverance, and emphasizes certain don'ts. I guess you could say wisdom is de-bomb. Walking in God's wisdom enriches our lives in so many ways. Well, once again, chapter 4 begins with the heart of a father toward his son. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. And you know, you should be thankful if you've got a father who gives out good doctrine who has taught you the truth, who has taught you God's word. You should be thankful. He says, when I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. Evidently, Solomon was somewhat of a mama's boy. Remember, he was the second son of King David and Bathsheba after their first son had died as a judgment against their sin. And so apparently Bathsheba, she kept little Solomon close for a long, long time. I mean, he was kind of her, her boy, you know. He, he grew up as a mama's boy. And he needed some special encouragement from his father. Verse 4. He also taught me and he said to me, Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, meaning wisdom, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. And Solomon took David's instruction here to heart. For in 1 Kings chapter 3, God comes to Solomon with a blank check. He says, make a request, any request, and I'll grant it to you. And you remember how Solomon answered? He answered wisely. He did make wisdom the principal thing. In return, God, uh, when Solomon asked for wisdom, in return, God answered him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself. 
nor have asked the life of your enemies. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor. Solomon asked for wisdom and he got it. But in addition, he got everything else he could have asked for but didn't. God blessed him with both riches and and honor. Solomon was the richest man who's ever lived. Here's the moral of the story for you and me. In all you're getting, get understanding. Always remember wisdom is the principal thing. He goes on, exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. You know, I hope you know that we live in a big, bad, ugly world. And Solomon warns his son not to be naive. For there are evil people in this world who refuse to call it a day until they sin and until they can encourage someone else to sin. You see, they're not content with just sinning themselves. They target other people to drag down with them. You need to beware of these people. You need to be wise and watch out for these people. He says, For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness, for they do not know what makes them stumble. You know, it's bad enough to have problems, but the worst dilemma is to be ignorant of the cause of your own problems. And and this is the problem with the fool. He says, my son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Now pay close attention to verse 23. It's one of the key verses here in the Proverbs. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. In Scripture, the heart is the seat of our desires. And wisdom chooses its desires carefully. Understand, desire determines destiny. We all end up worshiping what we want. You desire money, and money will master you. You desire sex above everything else, and you'll become a slave to sex. You desire fame, and your life will be one big ego trip. The issues of my life flow out of what I choose to harbor in my heart. Whatever I desire most, whatever occupies my inner life, out of that will flow the issues of my life. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with desiring what's good and godly. 
There is a place for desiring money and sex and influence. But it's all about managing what's in my heart. That's why Solomon says, keep your heart with all diligence. In other words, manage your heart so that none of these secondary desires become uppermost. Our utmost passion should always be our pursuit of God. Here's what Solomon is going to make clear in the Proverbs. The heart is the headwaters of life. Therefore, if there's a problem downstream in my conversation, in my language, in my relationships, in my parenting, in my finances, then you can trace that problem back to the heart. It all goes back to the heart. The stream is poisoned at the source. In other words, my root problem isn't my circumstances. It's never my circumstances. My root problem is always what's in my heart. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. You see, here's how God sees us. We're all like squeeze bottles. That's what you are right there. You're a squeeze bottle. Your heart is the inside of that bottle. So when the bottle gets squeezed by pressure, by circumstances, it's not the squeeze that determines the contents or that colors the contents. The squeeze only reveals what was put into the bottle earlier or what the bottle had been holding. You see, society blames sin on the squeeze. Society tells us that we're all victims of being squeezed. We sin because we're squeezed too much. We're too stressed out. That's why we sin. But that's not what Jesus says. In Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness. The problem came out of the heart. It wasn't that we were squeezed. The squeeze only revealed what was in the heart already. Proverbs agrees with this. We are not victims of external forces. The issues of life always spring from the heart so that if there's a problem, you can trace it back to the headwaters. That's where the life has been poisoned. Ultimately, what comes out of us is what we put into us. That's what we need to be teaching our kids. When our kids get angry at their sibling, oh, she hit me, he hit me. And they get all ugly and they get all angry. Don't let them blame their response, you know, on their sibling. What comes out of their life stems from their heart. They've got to look in their heart. Is your heart right, honey? That's what we need to keep addressing. We're so quick to blame other people. People go through their whole life blaming the people around them. They blame the squeeze for what's inside the bottle. What you put into the bottle is what's going to come out. It's not, the, it's not the problem. You know, we're a bucket, and we fill up that bucket. And oftentimes we get bumped, and we think, oh, you know, the bump is our problem. It's not the bump that's the problem. If you got good stuff in the bucket and you get bumped, good stuff will come out. But if there's bad stuff in, if you get bumped and bad stuff comes out, it's only because there was bad stuff in there in the beginning. You know, this is a powerful verse. 
Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Are you managing your heart? Are you careful about what you desire? Are you making sure that, that the major things are major and the minor things are minor and that you're not minoring on the majors and majoring on the minors? You want me to repeat that? Are you making sure of that? We all need to be managing our hearts. Big theme in the Proverbs. Verse 24, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. And again, how do you do that? By monitoring the content of your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth was in your heart. You see, the heart is like the well. The mouth is like the bucket. Pour out the bucket and you'll see what was sitting in the well the whole time. And you just didn't know it. You can tell about what's in a person's heart by what comes out of their mouth. Again, it's, it's all about the issues of the heart. Verse 25, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Watch what you're doing. In other words, keep your eyes on the road as you travel through life. Pay attention. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. Guys, it's the slight deviation. It's the little compromise that sets us up for major failure. In 1983, when the Korean Airlines flight 007 left Anchorage for Seoul, Korea, no one noticed that the navigational system had a one and a half degree error. Even a hundred miles outside of Anchorage, the flaw was still undiscernible. But as the 747 passed the Aleutian Islands, it started to stray off course. Before long, it had penetrated Soviet airspace. Russian MiGs were scrambled. And eventually, the plane was shot down, killing hundreds of innocent people. And it was all because it started out just a little bit off course. This is what happens to us spiritually. A slight deviation in doctrine ends up proving deadly. A compromise in conduct, ever so slight, grows. And the fissure gets wider until you suddenly break and it ends up fatal. This is why he says, pay attention to the path. Refuse to turn the slightest to the right hand or to the left hand. Wisdom stays in the center of God's will. Well, there's the first four chapters of the book of Proverbs.